Welcome to Metro Charities podcast series on equality. I am Emma Jones, head of Insight at Metro, which gives me the privilege of delving deeper into all the work we do and chatting to colleagues across the charity who deliver services in HIV support, mental health, youth work, sexual and reproductive health services, and a range of community-based projects. Marking the 10-year anniversary of the Equality Act coming into law on the 1st of October 2010, this month we have been reflecting on the significance of the word equality and what it means to us as a charity that started as a lesbian and gay rights group campaigning in the early 1980s. Metro champions equality as part of our central mission. This concept and practice is pivotal to the services we provide in supporting people who have protected characteristics recognised in the Equality Act legislation, including those with diverse sexual orientations and gender identities, deaf and disabled people, and black and ethnic minority service users and women. In this podcast series, I'll be speaking with senior leaders in the charity, both members of our paid staff team, as well as those who contribute voluntarily to realising our commitment to equality and diversity. Please join us in reflecting on the progress and barriers to equality leading up to the 2010 Equality Act legislation and beyond. My name's Emma Jones from Metro Charity, where I'm the head of Insight. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Barbara Gray, who's a trustee with Metro, to talk about our series of reflections on equality as a central mission of our charity and looking back on the Equality Act of 2010 and this 10 year anniversary month. Barbara, it's wonderful to have you with us today. And I wanted to start by asking you about uh, what it was like growing up in South London in the 60s and 70s. Right. Well, I was I was born in South London, um, so um, you know it's, it's my very early years. And my parents actually came from Jamaica uh, and met and got married uh, in South London in Clapham. So that's where everything kind of started, really. And I'm their first child. So um, I was born in Clapham, went to primary school in Brixton and Balham, uh, spent my teenage years in Tooting and Elephant and Castle. Um, and then early 20s, really, um, in Battersea and Vauxhall. So those are all kind of significant places because uh, they're all areas now that if I was ever to go back to, I couldn't possibly afford to, to live in. So that's really quite interesting, that transition. So as a child growing up, um, I, I felt like I was living in two worlds. So I was never, I was conscious of it, but as a child, you, you have no idea Um really the significance of that. So on the one hand, at home, I was growing up in a really close community, um, in an extended family of um, unrelated but adopted aunts and uncles and and cousins. So there was always people around us, um, around me, around my family. Um, There's always uh, children around to play with. And all of our needs were actually met in that kind of um, quite close environment, um, lots of fun playing all the time with children, annual trips to the coast because people have the people carriers as they're called now, music, uh, church, food, uh, the front room which was that mysterious place that we as children used to stand and, and look into and never dare go in, uh, weddings, funerals, everything, everything that we needed was actually catered for within that um, and people were always visiting just drop in and stay and have a chat and food so it was quite a nice happy uh world to live in um but once he stepped outside the door uh and out onto the high street really um 
there was another world that I was very conscious of. And when I think about it, you almost kind of prepared yourself from it. And particularly, um, I mean, in the 1960s, I remember going to school and the school dinners were a real mystery to me, uh, toad in the hole and all sorts of things I'd never heard of and food I'd never had. So that was quite, um, quite an adventure. But the thing around all of this was just the constant daily abuse on my way to and back from school from the age of five because I was at primary school. Um, and, um, you know, when I think back at it, and if you think of a five-year-old now walking down the street, just getting racist abuse and being told to go back to your country and being called all kinds of derogatory names, you know, it's quite horrific when I think about it, but that was the outside world. Um, Were you able to um, talk about that? Was that spoken about in your, your family and in your, your peer group? No, not really. I mean, it, it was just, you know, being in env environment, you know, the adults were always talking. Uh, and when adults are together and talking, then the children have to be out of earshot of all of that. So we were never, I was never uh, privy to any conversation about it, but they must have been talking about it. And when I think about it now, um, you know, I think they they protected us from it as as much as they could. Because we used to hate it that when we used to go out to the shops or anywhere out on the street, um, that, you know, by the time you'd got home, your parents knew where you'd been and what you'd been doing. But now I think about it, you know, when I've shared um, that responsibility just on my street here um, with um, children at the bottom of the road and me living up here and parents just keeping an eye out when the children are playing. It was all around safety, but we didn't see it like that then. So it was just part of life. I mean, at five, what do you know? Um, and that was just our realities. You mentioned uh, about being five years old. I'm just wondering if you could, could you tell me, Barbara, how, uh, what year, um, so I'm asking your year of birth, if you don't mind sharing, when you were five and when you went into primary school? Right, so that would have been 1961. And in terms of the, the things you were describing to me about um, the, the two worlds, I suppose, of um, life at home and, and life, your public life and on the street. How were things at primary school? And... Well, in primary school, it was it was very new because, like I said, we I, I spent all, all my time, most of my time in this very um, protective and quite closed um, environment. So going into uh into a, a school which represented where we lived in terms of just the numbers of people, um, completely the British culture as it was at that time in a white working class era because that's where we lived, it was something that was totally new to me um, in kind of the games that people played, the, you know, that we played in the playground, the food, the things that we were learning, um, the music that they listened to, the songs that we sang, I mean, everything was so totally new. Uh, I mean, even back 1961, I remember us having inkwells <laughs> and you get this pen and think, what do you do with this? So it was very, everything about it was new. And the food, like I say, was a great adventure because it was a real mystery. Everything that was on my plate, I didn't know what any of it was or how it was going to taste, but I know I like the um, desserts. <laughs> what was your favourite dessert in school? Well, I think it still is apple crumble and custard. Oh, yum. <laughs> or sponge, Just... chocolate sponge and, or sponge and custard, that sort of thing I really Ooh, liked. Perfect... we never had that at home. <laughs> perfect season for apple crumble at the moment. <laughs> so um, 
so in terms of your education then I, I when we spoke before you told me about um you know, going through secondary school and and feeling sort of on a on an equal footing maybe with many of, of your peers but things shifted somewhat after you left school can you tell me about that experience of, of going out into the, the working world into the world yeah I mean in in, in school we were it kind of was unequal in that like I say, in secondary school, I went to this huge comprehensive and um, I was one of about four or five black girls amongst 120 um, at that bit of the school. And we were in a section that was um, like a grammar stream, grammar classes. And we were, you know, destined to be having academic subjects and destined for a career. So um but we were just a handful of, 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 of um, black girls that were in it. It was an all-girls school. Uh, and even as we got to, I don't know, 15, where we got our careers advice, um, that's when we kind of realised we were told, I was told I couldn't have a second, a Saturday job in British home stores, which is uh, uh, because my parents weren't born in England and I couldn't understand that. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something about it being called British home stores as to why I can't be there. Um but uh, I worked really hard in school because I really enjoyed school. I love the environment. I love learning. I still do. I won prizes for English literature and I still love reading. So I had a really good experience. I was pretty quiet at school, didn't draw any attention and just did what I was supposed to do. So, But my mother was a real driving force in getting me into that school in the first place. It was one of the best schools and wasn't the school of choice, first or second that uh, was offered to me, but she was not having it, that I wasn't going to go there, and that I did. So that was a, a good choice on her part and her insistence at that time. Um, and I came out with the qualifications that I, I needed. I didn't know what I should do, because despite being amongst those who, who were aspiring to be doing great things, I wasn't really encouraged, and I didn't know what jobs existed. So a personal assistant for a director sounded good and you could earn a lot of money. So I worked really hard for that and actually came top in that course. It was a two year course condensed into about nine months. And uh, I just went through with fine colours um, and thought I'd go straight into a job. But now looking back, I can understand why um, a director or a chairman of an organisation in the early 1970s might not have cherished the idea of having a black personal assistant but at the time I just thought well I'm the best at this so somebody's bound to want me um and uh, I just that's what I I stuck out at you know I wasn't going to do anything else and eventually um through an organization which was part of the Martin Luther King Foundation based in Balham at the time so this would have been in the early 70s I got a job working as a personal assistant to Graham Greene at a publishing house in Bedford Square called Jonathan Cape. And it wasn't until later life that I understood the significance of per, both the per, my boss and the publishing house that I was working for. It was quite a, it was quite a significant um, achievement and a really good salary. Um, so yeah, that, but it took a while, took a lot of looking uh, and just being totally determined and coming across this organisation um, that enabled me to be able to get a job like that. What was that like as an environment to work in in that period? Yeah, so it was great. I mean, it was it was strange 
you know, there's me growing up in, in Ballum. We were living in, um, I thought we might have moved then, but I moved to um, Tooting. So we had five, six of us living in a two-bedroom house. So it was pretty cramped. And I was in this huge three-storey Victorian house overlooking a square just behind the British Museum. And my boss had a, a house in the country or more than one house and a flat in Pall Mall just up the road from the Ritz. And he had a, a chauffeur whose diary I had to manage and he bought his things in heels and all these kind of places, which I'd never heard of. It was just like another world to me. Um, and then in the publishing house, because Jonathan Cape was quite, Graham Greene is a very famous writer and um, and I was working for his nephew uh, and I knew nothing about this. And uh, he was quite a big, imposing man. I used to think, oh, gosh, you know, he's just so big. But uh, and I was probably just very small. And I knew nothing about anything that anybody was talking about. I, my, um, the, the, the main secretary had to show me how to um, open a bank account and how to write a cheque. I mean, that's how basic it was for me. But they were very supportive. And clearly, because they um, were recruiting through the Martin Luther King Foundation, had a different perspective and, and an intention as to why... Um, you know, I was recruited there uh, and, and given that chance to do something. And also, um, you know, I used to spend a lot of time going down and looking at manuscripts and discovered all the manuscripts of the James Bond books because those oh, were, really? that's the publishing house that published them. And I was just, now I knew, I understood that. I thought, wow, this is absolutely awesome. So it was great. It was a great experience. Uh, and when I look back, it kind of sets yeah. the level at which I always thought I should be working and where I should be working, who I should be working with. Um, yeah, so I think it was a really good um, start for getting into job, but it was really tough. And probably if Jonathan Cape hadn't linked up with that organisation, I might have ended up working in the post office. So I would have tried very hard not to. So just thinking about um, the, the broader society, actually, and and how things were at that time um did you become involved in any sort of activism or politics um related to race relations or other political issues and qualities no i didn't um not at all and uh I, and as i as i grow older it's just amazing to learn about all these things and i you know i just i don't know somehow like i said i grew up in an environment that was very protective and provided for all of my needs so there was no need for me to engage in it because you know you looked around and thought well you know, it's not easy, but there are ways around it. And I think that's one of the skills I think my mother taught me and my parents, because, you know, we lived a reasonable life, though we lived in awful conditions. Um, but you just have to learn to navigate the system. Um, and that's what I did because they wanted me to get on and I wanted to get on. So I just had to navigate it and achieve what I wanted to do, which is what I did. But um, I can look back and say that even from a small child, I was always supporting uh, and helping and advising other people from whatever position I was in terms of the level of knowledge and skill um, that I had. Um, so, you know, friends at school, you know, we'd go to school together and, and, and you know, just have a, a nice time. Uh, and that walk to school was never great, but, you know, we'd make it a bit of fun. Um, when I was um, at school helping children with homework and staff and just advise people on what I knew. And when I was working, just saying to people, well, you know, this is 
you can do this. Uh, there are these jobs. You could work at the West End. And when I went to work eventually to the Martin Luther King Foundation, when I went back for a second job, then I just remembered how hard it was to find work. And I did everything in my power to find people um, employment. So, and used to write letters for aunties and, you know, look at official papers and advise them. So I think, you know, politically, I think I was, I've always a very practical person thinking, well, this is the issue that you have. What information do I know or where can you go and just tell people. So I, I did, a, I did most of, of that really, and just stayed not in my lane because in work, I was definitely outside of my lane, but I quite enjoyed where I live because I could go out at the weekend and rave all weekend uh, to that great music, which is now this historical genre for London and the UK. So, you know, that that just wasn't my my thing, really, in terms of being a, an act, a political activist, because race was owned by the system. They politicised it. They owned it. Uh, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't it wasn't mine. So I didn't see it as my responsibility to be out there. Um, doing that. But I'm really glad that there were people who took on that role. I think mine was more practically based, really, and supporting people in my immediate environment. Um, I know that professionally you went on to, you moved into the public sector. I'm just wondering if you could tell us about that journey of joining Lewisham Council and how that shift was for you. Yeah, well, you know, I had had a really good career because I moved on to work in the press office for uh, British Gas, which was you know, pre-nationalisation. So it was this huge organisation and I had this perfect job uh, working in public relations for a large organisation, even now in comms. That's a dream job, really. And I did that for a long time. But then um, I became a mother and discovered that you can't be going to uh, meetings at 7.30 in the morning in central London and going off to Scotland at the weekend when you've got uh, a baby that's just six months old. <laughs> It just doesn't fit. And um, so I decided that I needed to have a job near home. And by this time, I'd moved um, to Lewisham and bought my own house because I was just fed up with the housing policy that was keeping me not where I wanted to be. And uh, sort of had bought my house in Lewisham. So I'd moved from southwest London to southeast London, which I'd never been before. Um, and... Um, saw this vacancy in The Guardian, which is not a paper that I usually read, but it just there, applied for it to work for the leader of the council. And uh, thought, I'm not so sure, because I've never had much luck with local authorities in my life. Did I really want to work for them? But when they matched my salary, and it was a five minute walk from my house, I thought, well, I've got other considerations now. So I took on, I took on that job. Uh, and as I worked there, uh, at that sharp end where politics meets service, delivery and residence, it was quite um, a shock. If people weren't happy about something, they had plenty to say. They'd come into the office or they'd ring or email. So it was a very, very busy, very busy job. And I had to go and um, receive petitions at the civic suite with hundreds of people. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is terrifying. I wonder if they're going to charge or something. Um, and meeting people one-to-one -one who were just at the end of their tether and really just felt there was no future uh, for their lives even that bad. And there was me at age 30 with a, you know, um, a one-year-old child dealing with all these massive issues. Um, 
and thinking, wow, this is it's quite difficult. And what became clear as well was that Lewisham was the place of the new crossfire. And, um, you know, when I was working in Balham in the um, late 70s, early 80s, we knew all about the new crossfire. And I couldn't understand a place where people would set other people on fire just because they were black. And here was I working in that borough. So it kind of set the tone of the understanding of the issues that they were um, around race, but also... Um, I came across some amazing people. There were some fantastic um, black counsellors who were doing amazing stuff um, and, and non-black counsellors who was a lot of anti-racism stuff that was going on here. So it was really interesting to kind of experience that firsthand from those people who were actually the trailblazers at the time. And I understand now the significance of why in Lewisham we've got things like St. Mauritius House, which was uh, beautifully designed sheltered housing for Caribbean elders, the Calabash Centre, which was a centre with lots of different rooms that provided a range of facilities. And there are a number of those kind of um, legacies around, still just hanging around, and people like Sybil Phoenix, who got the freedom of the borough, and Asquith Gibbs, who did a lot around... Um, race and policing at the time and we had um uh, a black we had a couple of black mayors two or three black mayors here so i understand the significance of all of those things and we twinned the borough twinned with um south africa and um did a project with them where we shared learning around um, economic development employment and linked to politics and that was absolutely fantastic. So that kind of thing would have happened in Nurshan because of its history uh, with racism here in far right. And um, the politicians at that time feeling that that was not something that Lewisham was going to tolerate or put up with. So I think that's what I learned about about that. I learned about equalities legislation. I'd never heard of it before. But as an employee for local authority, I realised that as a mum, I did have equal rights to stay in my job and not be put under too much pressure and to develop myself where I actually did a qualification in public administration and local government, um, which kind of set me on my kind of career path. So it was quite um, a life changing thing. Plus it allowed me, because it was only a five minute walk, 10 minute walk from my house, to uh, be a parent and manage both working and parenting. It sounds like an incredibly stimulating environment. I can hear the, the, the growth that you obviously were, um, experienced during that period. And it, it seems like connecting locally, obviously, was became important. So I'm just wondering, did, was that when you became involved with Voluntary Action Lewisham or how, how did that come about, your involvement with that organisation? Right. Well, I, I, I worked in Lewisham Council for a long time, over 20 years in different departments and uh, ended up in, um, not ended up, but my last job there was in economic development, which I loved. And it was the bridge between the community and statutory organisation and the council policy, been in a very practical way. So we get the data and it said, oh, well, this part of the borough has the worse indices of deprivation and we'd go in and I'd find out who lived there, what the uses were, who were the people that could create the solutions and bring people together and, and with all kinds of amazing um, projects, enable people to have a voice and to bring about local change that is still um, evident and can be seen in a tangible way today. So that was really um, an exciting um, 
thing um, to do and kind of set the pace for where and, and in that of course I came into contact with Voluntary Action Nursham because how could I not they were represented the voluntary and community sector and they're the activists and they're very strong activists who are part of you know understood the anti-racism and uh, Labour Party politics really and you know the working class and you know equity equality was really what it was 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 all about what they advocated for and supporting community organizations that could deliver um against the issues that were causing people not to have the best lives but I was a council officer so I used to really get it <laughs> when I go to those meetings I represented um I represented um you know the institutions that were causing the problems but as a black woman it was kind of a bit of a strange thing because most of the activists that I, I talked to were all white so it was really a, a weird situation but uh, I understood what they were talking about it because it's something I'd lived all my life um and then I got made redundant in 2010 I think it was when they had the huge recession and uh came back in 2015 uh self-employed thinking I, I I miss doing all that real grassroots community works and building bridges between statutory and community and different communities in an area um and I got kind of got back into that and uh very quickly was approached uh by voluntary action Lewisham and asked if I would be interested in being uh, a trustee and I thought mm, do I really want to do that but I thought well yeah you know why not be part of that um because I'm all about bringing about change and that's a good place to be um as a black person um to be part of that that kind of thing so that's how I kind of got involved um, in voluntary action notion and uh, given Metro Valve which is a Metro and voluntary action notion coming together and merging this year right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic what opportunities do you see um, with the organizations merging in terms of equalities and your role in that? Well, when this was an idea about the merging of um, Metro and Val, um, which was you know a while back, I, I had a, a meeting with Greg Usher, who's the chief executive of Metro, um, to have a conversation about Lewisham, because by this time I was kind of knee deep in data um, and have learned that the population had grown by 50,000 people. Um, and it was no longer just 30%, but 50% of the population were black and minority ethnic. Uh, um, and 76% of the children in the schools were mainly BAME, black. And um, when you looked at all the aspects of their life from early years right across to being older, the outcomes for the people were absolutely shocking. I just could not believe it. And I was really keen to kind of explore those ideas um, with Greg Usher and to think about, well, what difference would uh, Metro make to getting inroads into bringing about some changes and improving the lives of these people um, and increasing the life chances for those children at age four who were failing. Um, and I had a really frank conversation and he was very open to hear it and to have that conversation and to see that picture of actually this is Lersham, this is the population. Um, and to say, well, this is something that he'd be quite committed um, to. So I thought, well, that's good because I 
you know, at least we've had that conversation. I've put my cards on the table um, and made it clear that I wasn't going to be the token black woman on this board where people papers were going to be presented at the last minute and I had to agree or disagree, not knowing anything about what's gone on before with all the informal and other conversations, which is what tends to happen. So um, with that in mind, and I was vice chair of voluntary action Mersham by the time the merger had happened, uh, there was the opportunity to join um, the Metro board and be the connection with Metro Val. And here I was having that bridging role again that I always seem to have. And um, yeah, and it's been really good because I've been very open um, and I think that's been made clear. Um, and I think with the Black Lives Matter, that has just crystallised everything um, because I was in Vauxhall um, outside the American Embassy for one of the Black Lives Matters marches with my daughter. She's 32 now, Megan, awesome. And um, and she said to me, you know, how are you, you know, how are you feeling about this? And there was just like thousands of people. And I said, you know, I'm feeling really, I said, this is like a, a light bulb moment for me. Because the last time I was in Vauxhall, this is where I was housed by the local authority. And it was an area along the river which had warehouses and things that had been derelict for decades and decades and decades and very unsafe to live. But yet somehow um, the local authority felt that this was a, a good place for me to live and to place me. Um, and I just thought they really didn't care about me at all. My life really didn't matter. And I looked at all the events leading up to it in terms of housing, the things I'd heard at school, the difficulty I had finding a job, the fact that I had to buy my house, which is what my parents had to do because I just couldn't get adequate housing that I wanted in the end. And I'm thinking all this time, I'd really thought it was something that I could have done something about. And there really wasn't because I was in the hands of the system that was there and my life really didn't matter. I felt like crying. Um, and she was really surprised. So I think now um, the Black Lives Matter is saying, well, I understand the system um, and where it came from, from kind of back to the 1500s, which is why black history is so important when Britain was a trading nation globally um, around Africa. And, um, and then the merchants at one point decided that in addition to spices and silks and whatever, they, that they'd actually start to trade people. Um, and then a whole load of legislation and insurance and everything had to be put in place to make that something that was had some legislation around it um, and to legitimize it really. And um, and we still have some of that legislation today or the parallels of how those things worked. And they just all just came jumping up at me. Um, so I really understand what they mean about systems change and systems things. And in their manifesto, they talk about, you know, the criminal justice system. They talk about the education system. They talk about health disparity and they talk about the hundreds and hundreds of recommendations and legislation that has been passed. But yeah, we've got uh, black and minority ethnic people dying most of COVID. How is that possible in the 21st century? So, you know, I think um, Metro Val 
equality is something that they're at the heart of. My daughter is a, a queer young lady. So, um, you know, I know all about, um, not all about, I'm still learning myself um, about all of that and her life experience and the extra, not extra support, but I have to just be extra vigilant around all of that and learning about my environment again and thinking, oh, Lord, it's even worse for her. So I'm really hopeful and I think my role as a trustee in Metro Val is to have these quite open conversations um, to encourage um, and to provide an environment where everything is evidence-led. If we look at the statistics, they speak for themselves. They really do. And if people look at those um, statistics uh, and can be intentional about making it better, uh, then I think that I would have definitely made my mark and I'm quite good at bringing about change and sustainable change that benefits everyone because I think you know equality is something that benefits us all really Um, because like we say with Covid uh, it just goes to show that the health inequalities we've been talking about for decades can shut down the whole world and shut down whole economies so it's something really uh, that's serious for the people who are experiencing it and losing loved ones and for you know, the UK economy, European economy and the global economy. Barbara, I know that you were also mayoress of Lewisham in 2019 to 2020. How did that come about? Um, the, uh, mayor, the mayor of Lewisham um, in his current term, Damien Egan, uh, decided that he would have a different mayoress that would uh, work alongside him. Um, so I know it's a kind of an open kind of way of, of doing that role. And uh, so in his second year, I was approached, uh, which was in last year, 2019, early 2019, and uh, asked if I would uh, consider being the mayoress for um, that year. And um, I had to think long and hard about it because I really didn't see it coming at all uh, and not something I would ever have considered or thought about doing. And uh, I spoke to my daughter about it and said, you know, this is the request that I've had. And, you know, I'm not sure if this is something that I should do because it's quite a civic role and um, very steeped in sort of system and and traditions that I don't know have always benefited particularly the BAME community. And she said to me, well, mum, this is something that you need to do. Um, We need to see you there uh, as somebody that we can relate to and somebody who has, they see it as quite a big achievement uh, and that it was an important thing that I had to do. So on the basis, um, I took on uh, the role. And the reason I was asked was because of the fact that I've lived in Lewisham for such a long time, over 30 years, and I've worked in the borough both as a stat, in the, as the council officer um, and in the community. I run my own social enterprise now, Urban Dandelion. But even as an officer, I was the bridge between the council, the health service and the community. So I always had that kind of opportunity to look at both sides and achieve the best things for everyone really and especially for the community so it was an opportunity to kind of bring that aspect to this role. So during 2019 to 2020 when you you took this term of being mayoress what impact do you feel it had on your interest in equalities and your work in that area? 
Well, equality is, is at the heart of everything that I do. And that was something that um, I spoke to the mayor about when I was considering it and said, this is what I would bring to the role. And for him, actually, it was it was it was good because in the corporate strategy for Lewisham, they talk about um, addressing um, inequalities and particularly BAME health inequalities because there's such a big disparity. And um, a lot of the work I've been doing had been focusing on BAME health inequalities. So it kind of, the two things worked quite well together in that my approach and everything that I was thinking was how can what I do impact in a positive way and bring some benefit, particularly to black and minority ethnic communities and also for the elderly, um, because they are a protected characteristic who often don't have a voice. And I think it's really important. That's an important part of my role is that people have a voice and feel that they're heard. What did you have to wear as mayoress? Well, I think people were really disappointed. Because you don't wear robes. I think maybe that's something that's traditionally not happened in Lewisham for a while. But I did have a mayoress chain and um, people did uh, really love it when I came um, and um, brought back to the event and took photographs. And if I went to schools with the children, you know, I would give it to them and they'd all be crowding around looking at it and trying it on and taking the photographs and pretending they were mayoress or even mayor for a few moments. So, um, yeah, so I think it was the mayoress chain really that um, that was brought a bit of extra sparkle um, to it. We would love a picture of you in your Maris chain, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll see if there's one that I can find. But yeah, it's um, I I kind of it was more about the the events, all the people that I went to rather than being in this chain. So that was the thing. But one thing with the chain that I'll add was I went along to see... um, uh, visit an exhibition of a Catford artist and um, it was great because we turned up there with the chain and they also had somebody from Southwark because his exhibition was in Southwark um, and that's where I met up with um, the Migration Museum and that's been really great because they've since come to Lewisham so I'm really interested in the work that they're doing and bringing sort of culture and migration and stories um, out as part of um, the offer that's in the middle of our shopping centre so can you tell me what you feel in terms of uh, being mayoress? Was there a legacy from that involvement? Yes, I think the legacy um, is for uh, my parents who came in the 1950s. My mum came in 1954 and her her expectation and all her aspirations about what it is that she would achieve. And then later on, what she felt she wanted her children to achieve um, for coming here and trying to get a better life uh, for her and for us. Um, And I think it's a legacy for um, the next generation. So I've got nephews and nieces who are also parents, and at least they can say, you know, our parents came in the 1954 and, um, and look at that, you know, here's Barbara, a member of our family, who, you know, has got this role um, and also for all the people of the Windrush, you know, because they came here with expectations. They actually gave a lot quite silently, really. And I just think it's really great to have had the, you know, the the honour to be able to honour their contribution, to be able to do this and do it in a way that was intentional in terms of around addressing 
equalities, but also just being there and open to the community and do the best that I could for them. Wonderful. It's uh, an incredible achievement you've made in your life's work. And uh, obviously that seems like the icing on the cake in a way. Um, I'd just like to ask you to wrap up thinking about what you've said about the importance of equality to you and equalities. Could you give me just two words to sum up for you what equality means? Equality means equity. Because I think people get equity. So it's about trying to bring everybody up to a, a, a standard and narrowing race disparity. So there's a gap. And if the gap's getting wider, then we need to take account of that um, and be doing everything that we can to always be narrowing it. So equity and race disparity, those are the three words. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Metro's podcast on equalities. Please join us to continue the conversation online by following us at Metro Charity on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can subscribe to our podcast series on your preferred app. And to find out more about our services, please visit our website, metrocharity.org.uk. Thank you.